0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
1: Lying on your back in the garage. You can't see a thing, except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Higher and higher. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start?
2: When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it it's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself
0: or to someone else hi rochelle
2: hi how are you doing tonio
0: i'm good how are you doing
2: I'm well. Anything we, I should know before we start?
0: Um, there's no template, and I'm not formulaic at all.
2: Well, that's great, because neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's not so good. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see, right?
0: Yeah. Rochelle Lamb, you're a teacher and coach of nonviolent communication, and you also do grief and dying counseling with people, and you... Specialize in breakthrough conversations
2: well, that's what it says on my website yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: who put that you, there? you got
2: you know you, you gotta you gotta put something together for people right
0: you mean you have to and sell yourself
2: <laughs> you gotta say something, yeah you gotta sell yourself or you gotta come up with you know the thirty second you know answer to the question, what is it you do and you know when I happen to be looking for the name for my website you know on that day i thought breakthrough conversations was good you know this is the hard thing about the internet and anytime you put something in writing and you're trying to invite people i mean that's really what i'm trying to do is to invite people but as soon as you start doing that it becomes static so even, you know, hearing the term breakthrough conversations, it doesn't excite me all that much, not now because it's years later, but but yeah, in essence, that's what it is. It's like, you know, someone's in a conversation and it happens so often when I am working with people, they do have breakthroughs, they have insights, they go, holy jeez, you know, I never saw it that way. So, you know, just a couple of words on the page often fail to capture the vibrancy or the aliveness of things. That's just how it is. So, yeah that's
0: what I do. <laughs> when I was first writing up an introduction for you, I came up with this line that was partially from what I read on your website, Yeah, that you specialize in navigating transformational communication. Mm-hmm. It's such a difficult area. Language is such a strange and malleable thing. I mean, Laurie Anderson famously said that language is a virus from outer space. I don't really think it's Mm. from outer space, but relatively speaking, we gain it from outside of our own experience. It's not a natural thing, really, although it's something that emerges.
2: Yeah, well, we're not born speaking.
0: Exactly, or Um, using words or thinking in those ways.
2: Yeah, it's very true. It's a mysterious thing. I think it is anyway, a very mysterious thing. And, you know, when I'm giving workshops, I I say to people, you know, I say, hey, consider this. All of us learn to speak before we learn to think. Yes. Reflect.
0: Deeply. Yes.
2: And so what's the consequence of that? Yeah. When you're speaking, where did that come from? Yeah. And does it really come from you, the almighty you? You know, because people often say it does. This is my self-expression. But I question that, that conclusion. It's partly that, but it's a lot of other things, too.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of something that Byron Katie loves to say. She says, is that really true?
2: It's a great question. Always asking that. (laughs) I like that question. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And to ask it of of everything that we think or say or, or hear or anything. Mm-hmm. just as a regular practice.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, one of the challenging things, too, is that what we say, we often think that's who we are. It's so tied up with identity. you know. Like I said earlier, the, like the almighty me, the almighty I, this is me. There's a lot of emphasis placed on it. And that's where offense comes in, too, when people are offended. You know, you offended me. And, you know, I wrote a a brief poem a while back, and it's called Who Is This I? And I wrote, This I, a sprinkling of stardust, a film reel spinning for a brief moment in time, the silver screen writing my life, a two-way transmission point between heaven and earth, a shard from the great mystery catching the morning sun, a string from one of her prized musical instruments, the trailing song of my ancestors, the memory of those yet to be carried to these shores, the howl of childbirth, the exhale of summer, the daisies where my bones lie quiet, not forever this carving named I, but the way the gods breathed. So I wrote that just simply to... Enter into the question, "Who am I?" And I don't think it's a good idea to uh, come to uh, an answer too quickly on it, ever.
0: And it does continually change. It's a it's a moving, morphing, quixotic thing.
2: Yeah. Just like we said at the beginning of the conversation, you know, what I wrote a couple of years ago for my website. Yeah, it's still true, but there's more, and there's always more.
0: Mm-hmm. And we can yeah. even completely change our minds about things.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So it's really challenging if it's in writing somewhere, you know. And you said this, and yeah, I did, actually. You know, which is one of the things that I often wonder about with regard to the work I do, which is, you know, based on Marshall Rosenberg's work of nonviolent communication, and he wrote a book, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. Now, were he to look at that book again today, having seen how his book has been understood, interpreted, disseminated, all of that, would he write the same thing exactly? And given the time that we're in, would he? Probably not. I think there's elements of it that would remain, you know, quite solid. But I think a lot of things would change. And I think it's just important to keep wondering about how is this still serving? Or how is something alive? Or how have I lost track of it?
0: Yes, what you just said, how is something alive? And I think that's one of the things that is most important is remembering that we have to revisit things in order to keep it alive and revising the way we think, the way we communicate, and the way we talk about things, because not only is everything changing, but the way we talk about things has to change with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And the people that we're talking to are evolving and expanding as well. So we have to be listening to them and to how they're growing and expanding so that we can know even Better how to communicate with them.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a lot to keep up with because <laughs> the rate of change is so rapid, and people are living their own lives. They're, you know, for instance, a family. You know, you can think of back some time ago, and not that long ago, the fairly recent past, where you'd have people farming. You know, farming families, and they really knew what each other's days were about, even if they weren't, you know, beside them. You know, someone who's milking the cows, you know, and they come back and they're sitting around the dinner table and they're speaking about that, everyone at the table knows what's going on. But today, people's lives are so separate, even within the family. It's really too easy. It's tragically easy to be sitting at the table and not really have any sense of what another person's day is like. So that's really hard. That's hard for communication. That's hard for relationships.
0: Yes. And that reminded me of a few things. Reminded me of Stephen Jenkinson and the way he talks about language. And mm-hmm. in his latest book, he he does these etymological explorations of words and the origins of words and then talks about how these words or these terms have changed in our culture
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and while these terms and the language is changing almost all of us are completely oblivious to how they're changing and yet the way language is changing is completely changing our experience of everything
2: yeah Yeah. It's really hard to track it. And it creates a lot of I think divisiveness between people, polarity between people because we're losing track. When you say losing track about it.
0: (laughs) And when you say losing track, are we losing track of meaning and out of touch with each other's sense of meaning and understanding of things?
2: Yeah. I do think we are. I think there's a lot of what I would call ascendant talk or language that's ungrounded. It's not tethered to real things. It's quite abstract and ethereal. And I understand the desire to speak in those ways. I think partly it's a reaction to not being tethered. And there's a great sorrow in trying to be tethered when things are quite broken apart. And I don't think it's anything that people consciously are aware of. I think it's simply happening. It's not uncommon, for instance. You know, when I'm working with people, they'll say things like this. Well, you know, the universe wants this for me. And and I ask, well, can you say more about that? What what do you mean the universe wants that? It's right there in that statement. What you can see, if you're willing to stand there long enough, is that you're seeing the cosmology open up. And that the universe is almost like mom or dad, and the universe is the parent who is taking care of us. So right away, I'm the child. I'm on the receiving end of something. <laughs> and, it, and it's quite, it's quite abstract.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very new agey. The new you talk, I find it very challenging. So I do ask people, and by the way, I used to be in it. I used to practice it myself until I started to see, wow, this is not tethered to anything real. So, what do you mean by the universe wants things to work out for you? Well, it could be something like, you know, I met somebody I really fancy, or, you know, I applied for a job and I got it. Well, but what about the other people who applied for the job and didn't get it? Was the universe against them, (laughs) you know? So, that kind of thing, there is a loss of meaning, or at least a shared understanding. Because if the universe is favoring someone... It's probably not favoring someone else. And as far as I can tell, that's not quite how the world works.
0: And it's also a very simplistic kind of cosmology. And oh yeah, what yeah. it makes me think of is to ask, why do many of us avoid tethering to the earth and to reality? I mean, I understand that it's, it's really difficult because you have to keep up with reality continually. But... Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a fair excuse in itself to avoid that kind of grounded relationship to the world around us, to reality, whatever that may be for for each person. So my question is, what is it that makes people kind of run the other way?
2: Well, I think there's a lot of things and I, you know, I don't have a definitive answer on it, but I am thinking about a quote that I really like from the writer Upton Sinclair. And he said this. He said, It's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it.
0: Say that again.
2: It's hard to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. So... You know, the word salary could be changed for any other word, and I will give you an example. It's hard to get a person to understand something when their lifestyle depends on them not understanding it. That's one way of me answering the question.
0: It sounds sort of like kind of a distant paraphrase of ignorance is bliss.
2: It is, except that you have to choose it. You have to choose the ignorance, and maybe that is what happens. It's too hard to know, maybe. What if you're, the work that you're doing, you mentioned Stephen Jenkinson earlier, and one of the things that you know he has said, he said, it's really hard to find work that doesn't hurt the world. And so when we consider that most of the work probably does harm the world, there's just so many consequences. And so when most of us are, you know, just trying to get by, doing our best in a system that is, is harmful, then what, how do you live in there? How do you get through the day? Like, do you choose ignorance? You choose not to know because knowing is really hard? Hey, can I share a poem with you?
0: Of course.
2: Because it just ties in so perfectly with this. The poem I wrote called Agitation. I'm agitated. My pen is agitated. It's bleeding onto the page. I'm wrestling with the rough beast, the one slouching toward Bethlehem. Yes, friends, this is that time, and it's not so easy because we're chained to that very beast. It doesn't matter that we can shop till we drop, or binge on flaxseed or lattes, or tame difficult people, or recite powerful affirmations. It doesn't matter, because tell me, please, how is a Starbucks coffee cup not violent? How is it right or responsible to send a child to school or the curriculum of exploitation is delivered by kind people to keep the engine of civilization well-oiled? How is complicity not violent? What does it mean to be awake? What if waking up is too painful? What if not waking up is too painful? Which grief shall we choose? I tell you this. I am looking into the innocent eyes of tomorrow's child, my tongue paralyzed by the weight of how things are. What shall I say to this child? What shall I say? Here's what I want to say. I want to say that men and women gathered together. They took a good and hard look at all the ways they'd profited from having too much, taking too much, and blindly hurting the world. They voted instead for taking care of mother. They voted for accountability. They voted for reverence. They voted for the soul's need for beauty. They voted for kinship. And then they rolled up their sleeves and they labored. They planted gardens. They raised chickens and goats. They wove their own cloth and taught their children these things. They washed the bodies of their dead and remembered their roots. They gathered round crackling fires under the arcing night sky, humming with stars and told their creation stories. They fell in love with the natural order of things. They fell in love with their one and only home. They fell in love with their good fortune of being alive. And that, my dear child, is something for you to know you come from good people you come from fierce people you come from devoted people you come from radical people that's what i want to be able to say to tomorrow's child what are the odds
0: hmm first off i love your poetry
1: hmm thank and, you
0: and yeah what are the odds hmm and what i was thinking before and What you're just saying reinforces it, is that many people are trying to realize Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when you haven't fulfilled those needs, it's really hard to connect on that level. We get caught up in that equation that you, you talked about earlier, that what if your lifestyle or your salary depends upon ignoring the harm that we do in the world?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: But at the same time, there are the 1% who are continuing to do that long after their needs are met.
2: Yes. You know, there's a hierarchy to it. And I have read people saying that, in fact, you don't have to work your way up. I believe self-actualization is somewhere in there. It's the pinnacle, isn't it? And I think
0: so. But you have to fulfill yeah, the others first before you can that's even consider what is that.
2: yeah. And then I kind of just wonder these days, like, what is the big deal about self-actualization? Why is that such a strong objective,
0: you know? I guess it also depends on how you define that. Because if you're defining it in the simplistic New Age way, then, Mm -hmm. yeah, what good is that while the world is crumbling and falling apart? Whereas if you're defining it in terms of realizing oneself within the context of the whole world around us and interrelationship mm-hmm. and interconnection, then it has profound meaning.
2: Yes, and I'm not convinced that most people approach it in that way.
0: You know. Well, they only approach one, it from the level that they've matured to, right?
2: Or are sold, what is being sold or what is being marketed. You know, there's an awful lot in the self-help section. Right. Unfortunately, I think that where we're at, you know, at this stage of the world, you know, and I want to be careful about how I speak about the world. What I see where I live, and I'm living on the west coast of Canada in Victoria, B.C., and it's not that much different in other parts of my country, there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on, you know, acquiring, setting yourself up, What we're taught is, like, chase happiness, you know, get your life set up. But what about the planet? And it's something that I wonder about. So much time goes into attending to our own needs, but life also has needs. And what serves us, like the life that actually grants us life, is, I think, something we ought to be paying attention to, which is a more Indigenous understanding. You know, I would say there's a stark difference between how most Westerners approach life or see themselves embedded in life than what an Indigenous understanding would be. For instance, I think many people have already heard this. And I don't know where the expression comes from, but an Indigenous person looking at a forest who would say, what you call natural resources, I call relatives. Those are my relatives out there. So this automatically changes how you are when you're walking in that forest. I mean, would you turn that into a development? Does that make sense to approach it in that way? So, you know, I personally did get caught up in the uh, personal development rage, and I spent a lot of time. And uh, would you like to hear a poem dedicated to that?
0: Sure, and I just want to add that so did I. (laughs) Yeah, and... (laughs) How's it working? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I've matured somewhat. And what I refer to by maturity is, is totally in alignment with what you've been talking about. Our culture, our Western culture, is an extremely <laughs> immature culture. And I think that's something that Stephen Jenkinson really talks to a lot, that there's no elderhood, there's, there's no maturity in this culture yeah. because it's so yeah. young. And Mm -hmm. we are so full of ourselves and think we are the pinnacle of civilization. And there's that famous quote where somebody asked Gandhi what he thought of Western civilization. He thought, oh, I think that would be a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're like teenagers with the car keys and alcohol, unlimited supplies of gasoline and alcohol. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And we're destroying... World, and we're destroying ourselves.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: That's not much maturity or civilization in that.
2: No, there isn't. There isn't.
0: So, you had a poem that you were going to share.
2: Yeah, it's called Rickety Spoke, and it's exactly what we're talking about. And, you know, the years and I spent, I don't know how many, you know, combined (laughs) we've spent and, you know, the personal development, but. Here goes, rickety spoke. I don't know why, if it was because I'd made some mistakes or a general malaise had moved in with me, but I couldn't find happiness, maybe even hated myself, like I was worthless, a human disease. Someone told me I needed to learn to love myself, so I signed up. I bought the books. I went to retreats, sat silent for days on a pillow and block. I hit a rolled-up futon with a baseball bat greened my rage, I told my story in a healing circle, I danced to African drums, went to therapy, had a soul retrieval, journaled before bed, cradled my inner child, evoked my higher self. You can spend decades, and I did. And money equal to the down payment of a home, and I did. And I learned this, you only need to love life and love the world not the crafted irreality forged from the Iron Age that caused most of your woes and needs your compassion, but the world of the sun, moon, star, and earth, forest, leaf, berry, and feather, fur, claw, ocean, and gill, fire, stone, sand, and rain, life and death intertwined in ecstatic embrace, that wild and elemental one who wants you to fall in love. You only need to care with a big C that she will go on spinning on her axis of beauty. Because one day you turned towards the center, which was not you, and you planted some seeds, sang songs for the holy, because you finally remembered that you are a rickety spoke tethered to the great mystery, watering those seeds with your beautiful broken heart.
0: It's so beautiful. Mm.
1: Thank
0: you. And going back to the beginning of that, where you know, reflecting on the cause of why did I spend a house down payment searching yeah. for some escape from our grief about what we think is wrong with us. And when I was mm-hmm. younger, I was a chaotic mix of misery and joy. And... I was desperate to heal and to feel good about myself because I felt terrible about myself in relation to everybody else. I assumed mm-hmm. that everybody else had it together and that I was completely and utterly and almost hopelessly screwed up. And mm-hmm. I did many of those things that you listed as well. And I worked, yeah. <laughs> I worked very hard, even though along the way I did get clear messages That just told me, just relax. You know, you're barking up not only the wrong tree, but you're barking up totally imaginary trees.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. But it took decades (laughs) for me to to realize that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think
2: a lot of people, myself included, approach things as if they're answers or looking for, you know, looking for answers not realizing that the search itself is rooted in trauma or it's rooted in some already existing disconnection, whether we're alert to it or not. And they may be disconnections that we've experienced in our own lives, but there's also the ones that happened way before we were born, like the migration, for instance, of, you know, so many Europeans to North America. Or to the continent that was not then North America, had
0: its you know its own being uh, disconnected from nation. our home. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Stephen Jenkinson talks very eloquently about that, and that was a, a revelation for me. I had never thought of that, but it makes mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And I think it was Stephen Jenkinson who talked about how. We're not welcomed into this world by people who are overjoyed to see us and have this long history of healthy connection to our past and our future because a, a healthy mm. connection to our past is a healthy connection to our future and they, in a sense, are not separate at all because we, we yeah. actually feel that in our being. We feel both the past and the future as the direct experience of the present.
1: Mm-hmm. Do
2: you think, Tonio, oh, that the searches that so many people go on, you know, I think about the search that I went, you know, trying to find myself. <laughs> well, I'm right here, you know, <laughs> that's right. an, an interesting search. I'm trying to find myself. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking that, in fact, what that was, if I, looking back now, that was not, I was not actually really wanting to find myself. I think I was trying to find elders, but not knowing that, because if you do live in an elderless society, and you don't have that kind of guidance, then you start to turn inwards. You got to find it somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I go self-chasing,
1: mm-hmm. when
2: really I do believe I was looking for elders to, you know, to help guide me. There was a lot of choices that I made that I would not have made had I had the counsel
0: of elders. Right. But I think yeah. we also have to be really deeply compassionate of ourselves and of others who are doing that. We can only do you know, the best we can under the circumstances that we face. And mm. even if it appears that we wasted 20 or 30 or 40 years of our life in a search in all the wrong places, they eventually, for example, in the Hindu tradition, they have this thing called neti, netiti, not this, not that. So their approach to spiritual realization is the hard path of going through all the things that it isn't until you realize finally that it isn't out there. It isn't any of these things that Mm -hmm. we can search for or try to grasp, that it's totally beyond all of that. And it also reminds me of the tarot, which I never did tarot readings or anything, but I did do a, a little studying of it And in the beginning, there's the fool who doesn't know anything and is innocent. Mm -hmm. And he goes on this long journey through all the experiences that human beings tend to go through. Because we all Mm -hmm. tend to go through more or less the same experiences. Of course, not everybody goes through everything, but there's certain basic patterns that we all go through. And after completing that journey, that fool becomes the magician. Becomes mm-hmm. the skillful wielder of wisdom, of life experience.
2: Yeah.
0: So we all start out as fools. Exactly. And I don't think there's any <laughs> escape for that. Even in established traditions that have, you know, many generations of elders who are carrying the wisdom of their tradition. The young child has to be initiated, has to go through certain rites of passage, and there's mm-hmm. no easy way to do that. There's, there's almost always some form of trauma, but it's, it's a contained form of trauma that yeah. leads to something deeply and profoundly meaningful as opposed to the random, chaotic, meaningless trauma that we all go through in this culture.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very important what you just said about it being contained, and then I would add that it's guided by elders.
0: Rochelle Lamb is a teacher and coach of nonviolent communication and a death and dying and grief counselor who specializes in breakthrough conversations. She's also a wonderful poet. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
2: And the elders also understand the consequences of a childhood that will not end, which I think is really crucial because without that, then you would start to see without something to end our childhood. You know, several times you've talked about this culture as being like a teenager, you know, with uh, too much alcohol, too much gas, and there you go. So when the culture will not grow up. And, it, you know, it won't at this point. You know, it may be forced into it at some point by some catastrophe, but I don't think it's going to go down voluntarily.
0: Well, there's nothing to teach it. There's no wisdom for this culture to fall back upon. We worship things. We worship material and abstract material known as money. Yeah. Where's the wisdom in that? Mm-hmm. And it's not getting any better. I mean, it seems to be getting worse, if anything.
2: Yeah, I think it is. You know, and I think, you know, there's plenty of people who do speak about things getting better. You know, and that's because maybe in their own lives, things are better. And there is plenty of good news. But if you've got your finger on the pulse, and, you know, if this continues, you know, it's so exploitive. Our lifestyles are so exploitive and so hard on the earth. For that to continue, it means a lot of hardship down the road for a lot of
0: people. For all of life, it's so easy to just think in human-centric terms.
2: Oh, it is. This is one of the, I guess, objections I have to how NBC nonviolent communication, can be disseminated. If it's only approached from a human-centric understanding, I think that it can do a lot of damage because it's disconnected from the bigger picture, everything that sustains us and keeps us alive and going.
0: <laughs> this this touches on my lack of understanding of Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication. I was really only aware of and I think most people only think of Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication in human to human, interdynamic terms. Mm-hmm and learning skills to improve our relationships and our ability to communicate with each other. And I was not aware that Marshall Rosenberg also had a very strong social change agenda as well. I had never heard any of that until reading some of your material.
2: Oh, that was new to you. Well. Yes. Great. (laughs) And I'm trying to really put that under the spotlight. I'm also trying to approach it in the sense that, you know, you can see where someone is when they're, you know, when Marshall wrote his book, and that was in 1999 or 2000, if I'm not mistaken, when it first came out, published by Puddle Dancer. And
0: Which book are you, you know, referring to?
2: Nonviolent Communication on okay. Language of Life is the seminal piece that he wrote. And, you know, he he was a troublemaker, I would say, you know, he would say things that were quite provocative at times and disturbing. And I think it had a jolting effect. It would have people reconsider, which I think is really important to do. But he was really interested in social change. And I will never forget the day when I was at an international intensive training, which is a nine-day residential training, and I was one of the trainers working alongside with Marshall, and I... At some point, you know, at the end of it all, I was speaking with him privately, and I just said, you know, Marshall, I'm just so overjoyed, and I feel so much gratitude, and I just want to thank you for creating this, you know, tool for personal transformation, and I'll never forget how he responded to that, because he looked at me, and he just kind of raised one of his eyebrows, and he said, well, you know, if you really want to help me, I would like this to be used. For social change. So I remember feeling somewhat embarrassed, you know, because I clearly, in my way of expressing my gratitude to him, I was viewing it as a purely human-centric thing. Even in social change, you could say that that's also fairly human-centric. You know, for instance, we were talking about racism that has to do with human beings we're talking about a lot of social justice has to do with human beings. But there's also the social justice that has to do with, well, what about the whales that, you know, need to be eating salmon and, and the water that's becoming toxic or, you know, pipelines that are being built? All of that, that's also part of the social change picture, very much so. And, you know, he does say, you know, we have to really consider the needs of wildlife, of the birds and the trees, all of that has to be considered. So he said it, he wrote it, but it's not what was highlighted. And I think this is one of the challenges for any teacher or anybody who's saying anything. Mostly what we say gets filtered through the listener's lens. And, you know, it's kind of tragic in a way, you know. We could all go to a teacher who we have spent a lot of time with and admired and say, is this what you were saying? And a lot of the time, they would probably say, no, what I was actually trying to say was, you know, it's so easy to be misunderstood. Even after I do five-day teaching, I have people coming up to me and thanking me for helping people to get along. And I'm thinking, geez, that wasn't really my primary message. But that's what they come away with, because that's what they need at the time, I suppose. Mm -hmm. That's what they need, Mm -hmm. but there's also what the planet needs, and the planet can't wait for us to take care of ourselves before attending to the planet. I don't think that that luxury is available to us.
0: But if you're a parent and you have children, you can't really expect them, well, you can get them to understand things, but I don't think you can expect them to really deeply embrace, well... Now now that I'm thinking about it, I think you can. I think you can teach do. children. I think you can. I think if you bring children up with enough wisdom and understanding that they will actually embrace and take a very responsible and deeply caring approach to the planet and everything on it.
2: Oh, yeah. They will do what they see the people in their midst doing.
0: Yes, that's what they'll do. Exactly. And I just went through a moment of self-questioning as I was you know, opening my mouth and words were coming out. I was realizing, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the way we have to approach life continually.
2: Yeah. yeah. There's a the wonderful film. I think it's on Netflix right now. It's called Babies. It came out many years ago. It's a documentary that follows about the first two years of life of four babies living in different parts of the world. And one of the babies is from Namibia, Africa, born in a hut. And another baby is from Mongolia. Another baby is from Tokyo. And another baby is from California. And the camera simply just follows the babies. And it's so fascinating. You could look at it, you know, depends on how you watch it. You can watch it and just say, oh yeah, babies are so adorable, aren't they? But, I like to watch it more from an anthropological perspective. It's just wondering, like, how will those children's lives unfold? Or another way of wondering about it is, after you see a film like that, you ask yourself, if I had been born in another place to different people, who would I be now? Would I be the same person? No, I don't think so. So after I had seen that film, I felt sad that I was not born in Namibia, Africa. That, out of all of the places, that was the one that was closest to the earth. I mean, the children were literally, you know, on the dirt floor, and there was a continuum that you could feel and cohesiveness with all of the people, all of the children, different ages, adults, elders, and there's a real village there. And it was even apparent in the bodies the baby's bodies were so supple. And but where you start to see a rigidness coming into, you know, like in Tokyo, if you're living in a high rise on the 37th floor, you know, there's a rigidity that's going to set in. Your feet are not on the earth. So it was a very telling documentary. And I always encourage people to watch it when they attend my workshop, just to see, like, and get to know a different culture, not one that's so based on consuming yeah. So those babies are going to grow up and they become one of the people in their culture, you know. And it's really hard in this particular culture, in the Western, North American culture. Like, what do you do about smartphones, you know? If you keep them away from the child then the child goes to school and everybody else has one. I mean, it's it's so challenging. Uh-huh. It's so challenging. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: And being exposed to other cultures, I think, is... Extremely valuable, especially for people in this culture. I was very fortunate when I was young to spend a year in southern Spain, you know, not as a tourist, but actually living in the community and going to mm. a, a local Catholic school, even though I'm Jewish. And the whole experience was life-changing for me. Mm. And I clearly remember it as being the happiest year of my childhood.
2: Wow. Wow. You were there for
0: one year? Almost a year. And it really opened my eyes to a whole other way of being a human being. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with learning nonviolent communication and learning ways of of getting along with other human beings. But as you would say, we have to include all of life. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I have found is that when we do include all of life, by which I mean just really seeing what each human being is contending with by virtue of living in this culture, it's really hard on us. It's really hard to maintain one's humanity. And when you see that bigger picture, it does, I think, from what I've seen, it brings about greater compassion for people. When you see how hard it is for people... That gives rise to the compassion. There's a quote from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow who said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And when we see what people are just working so hard, just trying to get by, even if it's upper middle class, there's still a kind of a deep tension in having to maintain what you've got. And it doesn't come to people easily. I mean, there's a lot of work involved, and there's also a lot of exploitation, whether you're aware of it or not. And so that's part of the secret history of each human being. And just being able to tune into that, it does, you know, just naturally feel some compassion. It's not that everybody's mean and selfish. It's not it at all, you know? It's like we're in a zoo. We're, we're captive. Have you read the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn or any of his works?
0: Yeah, probably about 15 years ago, I read Ishmael.
2: Well, you know, that one is the gorilla who's in a cage and is speaking to the, the narrator. And basically what comes across is that, you know, the, the two of us are no different. I'm in the cage and you're in the cage. Even though you don't see the bars, you're in a cage. And only zooed people can zoo and get into the zoo business you know, why would you take wildlife and put it in a zoo? Why would you do that? It takes a kind of way of thinking to do it. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, to me, there's a lot of compassion in that. And then, knowing that, when you realize, when you're talking to your child, and your child is saying, I don't want to go to school, or I don't want to do homework, you know, if you realize that, Marshall used to say, you know, school is soft time. That's what that is. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so most parents don't think about it in that way. They just go, "Well, I went through it." Yeah, but even the way you talk about it, you went through it. It was it was grueling, wasn't it? Yeah. You know? And if you went through it, why are you positive. sending
0: me through it?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Well, because you'll never you'll never turn out. You, you know. You'll never, never amount, amount to anything.
0: anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah. And you have, like, really, like, what? so it's to really see the bigger picture. I think it makes it much easier to have really human conversations, often they will just, they will start out like this. Wow. Life is rough, isn't it? It's hard. There's a lot of hardship, you know, just to make it through the day. Wow. There's a lot.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And Marshall was asked the question once, what's it going to take, Marshall, for us to change things? And I loved his answer. He said, mourning, a lot of mourning. So, you know, I spend a lot of time in my workshops, really, let's grieve. This is grief work, is what it is. It's grief work, and from that, you can become really eloquent. But it's sorrowful. That's where we are at right now. I, you know, I can't really be high-fiving people. (laughs) doesn't mean there's no joy, by the yes. way, and, you know, your year in southern Spain, I don't know if you came across Flamenco, that's something I, I studied for five years, I i just loved it. it, to me, it's so alive, and the bandwidth for both joy and grief,
0: mm-hmm. I,
2: I would say that it's... it's uh, duende. The duende, yeah, the soulfulness, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of Emphasis placed on the sorrowful songs, but equally, too, on joyful ones. But I would say that if you don't have the grief, forget about the joy. It will be superficial if you have it. But the grief of how life is, and I don't mean bleak here. I'm just meaning it's hard, right? It's hard having a body, especially when it gets hurt. You know, there's suffering in the world. You know, it's like one of the noble truths. There is suffering. You know, there's different types of suffering, but there's the suffering that just comes by virtue of being born. You know, people get sick, people die, uh, things don't turn out. And so if someone's not willing to look at that or, you know, live in accordance with that, they're not that trustworthy
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and they're not that deep.
0: Well, they haven't grown up yet.
2: Yeah, and they may never. And, and I can have compassion for that, too.
0: But that's the gateway. Yeah. If you don't pass through that gateway, the gateway of recognizing the pain and grief in life, then you will remain a child, an, an adolescent, somebody who is dangerous.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Who's inherently dangerous to have yeah. on the planet in the body of an adult, but with the understanding of an adolescent or a child. That's danger,
2: yeah. yeah, and then give them a credit card and a bank account, yeah,
0: or a bully pulpit of <laughs> yeah. of any kind, <laughs> yeah, political power, money right. anything, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. the world that we live in
2: that is that is, and so a lot of you know what I'm trying to convey in my work is just to let's just have a look at that bigger picture, and then of course, we need to talk about you know doing the dishes or cleaning up, like the conversations that revolve around that. You know, that's often a standard issue in a lot of households is like, are people pulling their weight? You know, how do I motivate my child to contribute? You know, whether it's setting the table or, you know, doing dishes, you know, all of those things. How do you speak about it? And I do think it's always better to start with the bigger picture, which, you know, in the kitchen, it wouldn't be the rest of the world. (laughs) But what it would be is, like, here we are, a family trying to live together in this household. And there's work that needs to be done. You know, we need to eat. And so I would love it if all of us felt motivated to contribute to helping with that. And what comes up for you when you hear me say that? Mm.
1: Do you have
2: any thoughts on it? See, that's a bigger picture rather than when you don't clear your things from the table. I feel some frustration because I have a need for cooperation. Would you be willing to take your dish from the table? That's MVC. That's a practice, you know, of going through four steps, but I'm more interested in people being motivated by the bigger picture. Yeah, you belong to something here. So I'd like belonging to be what's central to the conversation and not cooperation. Cooperation, I think, will come because... We recognize we
0: belong. And one thing that I really loved that I found on your website was a couple of videos of Inbal Kashtan. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's so good at that. I just love the way she talked about how to talk with your child and how to really be present and deeply listen and, you know, to recognize the difference between making a genuinely heartfelt request and also being willing to hear no for as long as it takes for that child to feel like they're truly being heard and understood for who they are in the equation, which adults in our culture tend to think is not relevant.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, the nuclear family is a very different setup than a community. And you think about it if you've got Two parents, and oftentimes it's just one parent, but you've got two parents and you've got these children, and the parent is modeling by cleaning up after themselves, but that's not necessarily the kind of modeling. There's too much on the parent, it's too burdensome for the parent. If you're in a situation where there's a big table and there's lots of people of different ages, the older children, are already schooled in this process, and the younger children usually follow their older children, and it happens without anybody even talking about it. I remember a book called The Continuum Concept that is is one of my favorite books by Jean Liedloff, and she spent time living with the Aquani Indian tribe in South America, and. The book became a book about child-rearing, although that was never her intention. She just simply wanted to bring to people's attention that there was another way to live. And what she said, what she noticed there was that children had their own autonomy. But here, if you were to take that same dynamic and bring it here, just in a nuclear context, nuclear situation, that would become what's often been called neglectful parenting. If you take that same approach and you plant it here, because it seems now like there's not enough feedback coming to the child. But in a village setting or a community setting, you have a lot of people. It's not transferable to the nuclear family.
0: I read that book, and I found the introduction to that book to be extremely profound. The child, even an infant, learns to express and to live out what is expected of them, whereas in this culture... Parents are terrified for their children's safety, and they expect the worst, and children live that out in our culture, or yeah, they respond yeah. to that. Whereas she said that in that culture, the parents expect their child to recognize their place in the world, and if they're working at the edge of a cliff, they trust that their child knows not to roll off the edge. They expect yeah. that of the child, and the child doesn't roll off the cliff.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the power yeah. of, the, I don't of think that we could cultural. do that. <laughs> no, no, that's the power of, of cultural expectation.
2: Yes, yeah. I don't know if you remember, I think it's fairly early on in the book where she's with several of the Yaquani tribe members and they're walking through the forest with a canoe and they're carrying it and it's pouring rain and it's slippery because of the rain, it's muddy and she's miserable. She's so unhappy. But meanwhile, the rest of the folks are laughing and choking and they're having a great time. And she suddenly starts to wonder about that. She notices that she's feeling so miserable because she doesn't have the comforts that she's used to. But they're having a grand old time. And so she's starting to ask questions about, like, how did I get to be this way? You know, there's something about sense of entitlement that can make you really miserable in many environments where other people who are used to it would be quite comfortable and grateful, you know? They were having a wonderful time, but you said at one point they slipped and the canoe pinned someone against a tree and it could have been fatal, and he was just
0: laughing like,
2: oh, that was close, <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's what they did in Spain. Like, if you fell down, you hurt yourself, everyone around you would laugh and In the midst of your pain, you would end up starting to laugh as well. Yeah. Someone slips and falls, and it's not the great tragedy that we make it out to be in this culture where we take everything so personally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody falls. Everybody's clumsy sometimes.
0: I'm talking with Rochelle Lamb. She teaches and coaches nonviolent communication and offers grief and dying counseling. She has a blog and website, which is RochelleLamb.com. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. A lot of what you've said is reminding me of something that I wrote this morning in response to this thing that a friend sent, which is related to a lot of what we've been talking about. And maybe this mm-hmm. is a good time to, to read this piece. Sure. The binary doesn't need to be destroyed, but rather blown open and expanded to reflect the complexity of our ecological and celestial kin. I stand for queerness that is inextricably informed by interspecies solidarity, by lichen, dusk chorus, swamps, coral, and the cryptobiotic soil. Our genders, our forests full of hermit thrushes, canyons echoing with canyon wren, plains rejuvenated by native hooves, shimmering galaxies, Gurgling streams, bogs fostering rare carnivorous plants and wildflowers, an unapologetic natural phenomenon. Queerness is not another value for the simulation of human exceptionalism that serves the project of settler colonialism. It is a devotional practice of decentering our human centrism to continually expand our co liberation and remember that our queerness is a disruptive, remediative fruit of the earth, always reminding us that we are constantly becoming a rattling reminder of the practice of living and dying. Mm.
1: Mm.
0: And over the past few years, I've had the privilege of talking with people and having very interesting conversations about queerness and what that really means. And it's a little hard to pin down, and probably with very good reason, as it seems Mm -hmm. to be continually expanding as our experience expands. What was once considered queer, in a pejorative sense, was something perceived to be outside of the box and therefore not good. What's this business of putting things in boxes and living in boxes and thinking inside boxes. Why would we choose to limit ourselves like that? Yes, Mm -hmm. there are very practical uses for boxes. But to put oneself into one, like a prison cell, and limit our thinking within one, like a mental straitjacket, who would consciously choose such a thing for themselves, or for a loved one? Mm.
2: Yeah. Good
0: question. And it's the question that isn't being asked in this culture at all.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, part of it I would imagine has to do with, you know, if we look at needs, the needs for order and structure, but you can become a little bit too focused on those, you know, because what about aliveness? Because aliveness doesn't live in boxes. Or, you know, think about as kids when we were taught to color inside the lines, you know. And, yeah, who wants to be a cookie-cutter human? The world is a big place. It's a small planet, but it's a big place, and there is so much diversity. And it's really good for the soul, and it's good for all of us if we expose ourselves to as many varieties, you know. And most of us have no idea just how vast it is. There's um, a quote that comes to mind, it's D.H. Lawrence, and he wrote, Oh, what a catastrophe, what a maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal feeling, taken away from the rising and setting of the sun and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and equinox. This is what is the matter with us. We are bleeding at the root because we are cut off from the earth and sun and stars, and love is a grinning mockery. Because, poor blossom, we plucked it from its stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep blooming in our civilized vase on the table. (laughs) Wow. That's good, eh? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. That says it all.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And a lot simpler than all the other ways I've heard it said.
2: Yeah, it does say it all. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed this conversation so much.
2: Yeah, as have I. Yeah, very much. I love how it kind of just went to all sorts of different watering holes. (laughs) Mm,
0: uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Do you have a poem that you could end us with?
2: Oh, Sure. It's not one of mine. I do have a lot of poems, but this one is by Ellen Bass. And it really ties in beautifully with what we've been talking about, certainly at the interpersonal level. And I find it very moving, and it's called If You Knew by Ellen Bass. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport. When the car in front of me doesn't signal. When the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you. I don't remember. They're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's fume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time?
0: So good. Something to keep with us on our travels.
2: Yeah. 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 Through life. Yeah.
0: From moment to moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll yeah. all come to an end, and it's all important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's where our shared grief is indistinguishable from the deepest form of compassion.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: For each other. For the whole world. Yeah. And even if we get there and we solve all of these problems, we're still not going to get out alive.
2: No, we're not. (laughs) Well, amen to the whole thing.
0: To the whole thing, yes. But (laughs) but we can pass something on for those Mm -hmm. yet to come. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And hopefully a little wisdom along with it
2: hopefully we'll see we'll see but hopefully yeah
0: if we can attain such a thing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and not just individually yeah. we really have to do it as a culture
2: yeah
0: well again thank you so much this has been such a great yeah. pleasure to talk with you
2: yeah it's been really wonderful thank you for the work that you're doing
0: you live in Victoria British Columbia that's huh? right your work is local, I presume.
2: It's local, but I also work online with people. And I do travel. It's it's fairly minimal, but if people invite me, if they have a group of people and they like to do a workshop, then that can be arranged.
0: And you have a lot of great stuff on your website, so why don't you give that?
2: So it's com, R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E-L-A-M-B dot com and there are lots of resources and you know people can sign up for my newsletter and keep in touch with me that way
0: and you have a blog as part of that website you write things periodically I I do and your writings are quite wonderful
2: thank you so much and that's you know I do have a page uh, a Facebook page which has all my poetry on it and one of these days it is my plan to compile it and put a book together as well as the material that I have around NBC, which I think would be more in the form of essays. It's not out there yet, but if enough people bother me <laughs> about it <laughs> and ask me about it, it might just happen.
0: Well, if you do that, we'll have to do this again to talk about it.
2: Okay, that would be my pleasure.
0: So until then, be well.
2: You too, Tony. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, bye-bye.
0: <laughs> Rochelle Lamb is a teacher... And coach of nonviolent communication, and a death and dying and grief counselor who specializes in breakthrough conversations. And now we're going to hear Rochelle giving a wonderful poetry reading.
3: A poet is someone who can pour light into a cup and raise it to nourish your beautiful, parched, holy mouth, Hafiz. Poetry is what we do to break bread with the dead Seamus Heaney poetry is language against which we have no defenses David White poetry is just the evidence of life if your life is burning well poetry is just the ash Leonard Cohen so first of all I just want to uh Say, I I saw uh, something the other day, and it was like a sign, and it said, The trouble is, you think you have time. (laughs) I thought that was good. So I'm going to proceed like your time means a lot, and it was a big deal for you to come out here. So I'm quite rigorous about holding a high standard, and so I hope it's worth your time away from what else you could have been doing in order for you to have come here. And I like to read to those who make it possible for me to write to begin with, which I would say is not human, but is deeply alive and sacred. Wendell Berry said there's only two types of places in this world, the sacred and the desecrated. So this is in honor of the sacred. I'm going to start out with something sweet, because it will get very sober very fast, as it does typically around me. But is not the kiss between a man and a woman one of the most sublime, exquisite gifts of the gods? The intoxicating sweetness of softly parting lips, the dizzying pounding of hearts speaking in tongues, warm, liquid honey filling the soul. Pilgrim. Would it be too much to ask for all that comes our way, to prostrate our tiny selves before immensity? The seduction of forgetting we're addicts every day, as if it takes no effort for mother to prepare a meal. The buttercups, the riverbeds, the pine cones and the sparrows, the buffalo, the yellow corn, the harvest moon, the morning If praise and prayers are what you eat, you must be getting thin. And how's your heart, oh mother dear, when your children keep on taking? Entitlement's a nasty habit, the throning of the self. Desecration pays the bills. Let's keep those pipelines churning. I'm guilty too, I never knew. This gated stream, my home. But guilt and shame are toxic waste that keep the hatchery solvent. Take these, my humble palms and weavings, my trembling voice, my tears, impoverished pilgrim of remembering, my work is just beginning. I do what I can to uh, be faithful to the times we're living in and to write poetry for the times, so I don't call it optimistic but I would say it's real holy such a fine word I love how it feels in my mouth holy preferring to be softly spoken almost whispered opening a modest door to where all is awash in mystery a glow in amniotic sheen a holy forest a holy moonlight a holy table a holy moment. All the places where God lives, when we're so busy moving our belongings back and forth across the chessboards of our tiny lives. I have heard the wise ones say, Never let a day go by where the holy is deprived of praise, where your capable tongue does not speak exalted words of humility that you entered this world beholden to something far grander, far more precious than your magnificent plans. A little bit of yoga in this one. It's called downward human. (laughs) So, you had thoughts. If you just do enough downward dogs Enough Om Namah Shivayas, enough therapy and journaling, enough workshopping and retreats, enough meditating, enough Harville Hendrix. enough power of now. Finally, you would be free of suffering. Oh, yeah. Or at the very least, able to navigate all hardships with grace, a better and wiser version of yourself. And now the only pose you know is downward human. And your compass is broken. No, not broken, smashed. And you're in Dante's dark wood, and the true way is wholly lost. And now, maybe now, the one called love can finally and truly come and sit with you, can sweep you off your feet, because it's you who will do the heavy lifting, The thousand tears, the wailing, the deep prayers on your knees, the I can't go on, I can't go on, the necessity of going on, remembering you're an ancestor to those unborn who are watching you. This could indeed be our finest hour. This is called flirt, a little change here. There have been a few days where the scent of spring is in the air. Spring, that little flirt. She's hoisting her skirts a little bit today, exposing her dancers' ankles and exhaling her soft, moist breath. The gulls are screaming while sailing her smooth currents. Why make such a racket, I ask. Listen to the waves talking to the beach stones. They're having a much softer conversation today. And men in hard hats and orange vests they're working along the seawall trucks and tools and important work one winks at me and loneliness dies for a moment happy oh happy I am that this world keeps on spinning spring hums her sweet song can you hear her I'm coming back with baskets of snowdrops and crocuses very soon in fact I'd say she already has So that was just a little lift. Now we're going back down. Say a blessed amen. You can pretend it's not happening. You can meet friends for coffee. You can fall in love, which is not a bad idea. Or redecorate a room. You can join a new sangha, feed a child through world vision, plant trees in a bulldozer's wake, Burn sage at the Grand Canyon. You can recite your mantras, reduce your footstep, rewire your neurons, set up a nonprofit to save grizzlies or dig wells in Uganda. But it's still happening. Civilization has hit the iceberg, and the sound of timber cracking cold has reached the equator. My Sophic grandfather wrote as his dying days drew nearer, you can do whatever you like, but do not forget to remember and so as the ship tilts starboard and an infant sleeps in his mother's arms don't betray the grief soaked moment say a blessed amen to the tragic unraveling this is titled Guru comes with a knife The guru keeps telling us, let go of the past. Don't concern yourself with the future. Only this moment exists. Be here now. The words carefully laid out atop a picture of a pristine water lily or that famous single droplet casting circles upon the still surface. You know the one, right? Promising peace if you stay, and of course you want to stay. But I beg you, don't. Come to the river with me instead and we'll watch what a small boat can do. Only one minute to pass by and another six for the ripples to eventually subside. Let's quietly watch together. Look, over there on the other shore, the great blue heron suddenly spreads her wings for flight, the roaring motor, such a clumsy mating call. And the silver trout's next meal, now coated, in a drop of gasoline the pretty sunlit rainbow ribbon snaking its way as it reaches out with its long toxic fingers it's happening right now we all know it and yet again now I tallied seven minutes but it's much longer the slow poisoning of what we claim to love so tell me guru How to let go of the ripples that long ago brings to the shores of today And what of the children of tomorrow Now dreaming and curled in their fetal slumber Twitching as they feel the menacing edges Of the canvas we paint this very moment You speak of time, Guru As if dissecting a dead thing Into three perfectly even cuts Your white robes are spotless Pure essence is the jewel of the heart, abiding stillness, the holy grail. Guru, may I approach you, please? I question the edge of your blade. Jesus disturbed the masses with his sword. I wish you would do the same. Thousands gather before your counsel, and the world is much smaller than we thought. So please, please, tell us the whole story of how this holy web of time binds us to life. How unbearably heavy the tattered swath of the ages has become. And how staggering our responsibility is and must be. Oh, what a sorrowful bind we are in. Let's walk to the river together. This one's very recent. It's called History. History. I had always thought that history was then, a long time before us long before what we had rights to. After all, the school textbooks described it like it was a neat trimming sliced away from the meat of now. No one ever told me that right now is history, too. History was only ever being made if you did something deserving of notoriety, like going to the moon, for instance, or building the first combustion engine, or finding a cure for cancer. Or, if someone no longer was in love with you, then quite tragically, you would be history. But history is now. There is no time when we are not wholly complicit in the unfolding story. Every seed or axe I hold, or let someone else hold, for what I consider benefit, every tree I plant or fell is already living or dead. My willingness to know, immaterial, holding fast to a page in someone else's yesterday. We're all in the same boat, our paddles in the same waters, the same salmon gone missing, the same pipelines gouging the same soil. The important moral question was never put forth to me. After all, it would have interfered with the right to personal freedom. With progress and corporate agendas, with the comforts we're so certain we deserve, and our right to simply feel good, But still, it must be asked. Knowing we are history, right now, in this very moment, what responsibilities does this knowing confer upon us and how we live the lives we have been entrusted with? What is the international anthem, I ask, for being human in these times? All right, so we'll shift to something else death. You wonder, does she ever write anything happy? Well, well, yeah. This is it. (laughs) I know there were a few of you, the front row here, who were at a flamenco show last night. So the reason, I think, it would be safe to say, certainly the reason I love flamenco and I studied it for five years was because of Duende. Duende is the soul. It's the fire. And it's saying yes to the whole damn thing. Yes to the whole catastrophe. So I'm just doing a deep bow to everything that often people say oh I don't want to go there, I'm going there so uh, this past summer a beloved cat our family cat would have been uh, I think about 17 years old and came the day where that very difficult decision to make her name was Tiger Lily your last sunset was last night and your last sunrise this morning there you are curled up around your longing to keep living. Stretching your tender paws into the cricket-hot day, soon to rub your feline side up against God's shins. May my prayers for you spill through my sorrowing heart, be plentiful and worthy for your innocence and beauty. And before that, my father died. Everywhere his name. When someone you love dies, for a time afterwards, you see them everywhere. Over there, that swallow perched atop his wooden house, his iridescent shadow, blue feathers, shaping him against the rough grain, the white triangle of his throat, such a bold and stylish cravat. He sits there only a few feet away. And he doesn't fly away like he should. He sits there for minutes and after speaking to him, saying out loud how perfectly handsome he is, how noble in stance, how beautiful and swift in flight, how you love him and the way he gathers food for his young, he suddenly lights into the blue veil above, sweeping and soaring in yes and scribing across the heavens the name of the one who died but a few yesterdays ago. And when you stand at the edge of the lake and the midday heat and stillness is the only movement there is, when without warning a spirit wind rises from the spring-fed water claiming strands of your hair and mischievous play and the windmill shouts its weathered age to the grateful bending reeds, you close your eyes and maybe know There again is the one who died, their soul cast like a holy net across all the things you love, all the things you love that cannot speak. You stand struck by the immensity of longing towards grief. Some of you have heard this before. It's another, uh, it's a death theme, but it's about my death. And I wrote it a year ago, so I'm a year older now. There's a reference to my age in here, so just a heads up. Before I go, this is what it's called, Before I Go. I feel my dying. I think about it every day, and I want to be held. Am I too old? Now 56, the same age my grandmother was when she died, stepping from the passenger door of the car. I'm going, she said. She knew, and the grass in Ireland whispered her name, Margaret. I, too, could be in the ground now, on this side of the many-legged roots, listening to beets and carrots edging closer, dirt and maggots in my mouth, but I want you first, I want you before that time comes, before I go to bone and ash. I want a kiss so I can remember what it's like to be here, my heart pounding like a teenager's. And yes is the only word there is in the thundering surf as my alabaster dress falls quietly to the sand. And the long-armed wind embraces my one and only body. I want you, please, grant me a kiss that tastes of love and honey. Let's coax the Milky Way to crackle and hum. Even the gods are on the lookout for that golden nectar that intoxicates the soul and soil. It's beguiling memory, restless in the aroused dark. See, death is not such a bad thing after all. I cannot resist... When I get lonely and my heart just can't carry anymore, I go down to the ocean, lie on my back and look up to the sea of blue. I let her vivid cry of joy lie on top of me. The glittering swell of salt water becomes my rapture. I grip a smooth stone in each hand. Did you know that rocks whisper? They're naughty and bold and say things like, let go, let go. Three curious gulls circle above. I'm a human starfish to them. My arms and legs stretched out, hair braided with seaweed and sand. My nakedness claimed. All loneliness stripped from my body. The wild sea air has a tongue I simply cannot resist. The world shimmers. This is called No Politics, and I'll just first let you know that it occurs over a year ago when... I guess about six people are gathered around a table, six or seven of us, and one of those people no longer breathing the air like we do anymore. And there was a conversation about, it just gets heated, you know, when you start talking about Harper. And uh, <laughs> so this is called No Politics. And it's about one of the people who was sitting there and hadn't said much. She'd not said too much. Politics wasn't her thing. Since nothing really changes once the ballots are counted, so why expend the energy when the conversation heats up between friends around a table? But she did say this once the tea had been poured, something she thinks about when riding the bus on busy mornings, all those strangers sitting quietly, looking nowhere in particular. She often wonders what it would be like to slip her hand into the hand of someone seated next to her two people in stillness breathing softly a solitude broken without invasion no talk of politics only simple truth okay I think this is the end and this is a big one first I'll just say age Ah, the sacred blessing of age to want nothing more. Not even a lover for a sweet night of comfort. The only kind of nakedness sober and steeped in humility. No makeup, no pretense. The eyes clear and knowing and lines that tell a million stories. This is what I look like. Don't airbrush me. I'm showing signs of aging My neck ain't what it used to be My cheeks have lost their fullness I've got crow's feet around my eyes And those tiny lines around my lips I've lost about an inch in height My clothes are definitely tighter I've got handles and a handful of pizza dough Where my belly once was flat Shall I go on? Spider veins, varicose veins My arms and thighs have lost their firmness My ass is getting dimpled I'm losing collagen every day Don't airbrush me My hands are getting freckled, my hair is graying, it's supposed to. My breasts are small, I always were. I have a rogue hair on my right nipple. There's no damn way I'm going under the knife. No implants for me, no nips or tucks, no needles, no Botox. I will say it again, don't airbrush me. I'll tell you what though, I'm fiercer than I've ever been attending to beauty and to all that really matters. I'm not trying to impress you anymore. I'm not invested in your approval and I'll be darned. But when you give that up, another beauty bursts forth, one that can't be held back or pruned or shut down so that no one feels uncomfortable. Maybe you don't find me that sexy or glamorous, but I'll see to it that you feel more beautiful in my presence. And that is beautiful. I'll appreciate your realness and insist that you be raw and true, that you become a human being and declare your loyalty to how the world needs you, no matter what it costs you. I'll tell you what, this aging thing... It will school you better than anything when you climb out of bed not feeling so spry, when you see your face each morning in the mirror, when the mojo for success won't be ignited by the will that you depended on for years, aging will put your back up against the wall and say, you better get moving and start saying the things you didn't say so you could be liked or get married or get a raise at the office. I may not look like Penelope Cruz, but I'm every bit as hot. I've got my Joan of Arc sword on taking a stand for mercy and beauty and all the things this amazing world needs. I'm the old Flamenco woman who gets up and struts her duende. She's been around. That woman has a in her sparkling eyes. Grief and joy etched deep in the lines of her face. She knows a thing or two. So don't fucking airbrush me. <laughs>
0: That was Rochelle Lamb. She's a poet and a teacher and coach of nonviolent communication and a death and dying and grief counselor. Her website is RochelleLamb.com. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.